0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Some of you uh, are familiar because I've talked about this before, but um, the Enlightenment period that happened in the uh, early 18th century that took Europe by storm uh, was centered around the idea of reason. And that reason was the primary source of authority and legitimacy. And the tip of the Enlightenment uh, is usually pinned on Rene Descartes' claim, I think, therefore I am. And for all the seeming good that Descartes probably did, and subsequently the Enlightenment did, it has some serious drawbacks. And for starters, uh, ever since, people have assumed that truth only operates in the realm of the mind. The notion is that ourselves, everything we are, finds its home first and only in our thoughts, memories, and hopes. Now we probably cannot influence us, and this worldview has a lot of contradictions with the Christian worldview. Uh, Things like the resurrection of the dead, the Holy Spirit, the incarnation of God himself, the virgin birth, creation accounts, miracles, divine revelation, all seem to bump up against this line of thinking. But what is also true is that we, 21st century Jesus followers, operate in the realm of the enlightenment so much so when it comes to practicing our discipleship to Jesus, particularly when it comes to the idea of sacraments. Now hear me say this, I believe that thinking is critical. Uh, We should love the things of God with our mind. God has given us a brain and He gifts us with thoughts and ideas to ponder. Scripture is to be meditated on, which is how we use part of our brain. Paul reasoned in the courtyards with the actual philosophers of the day, engaging them intellectually. So how we think uh, is critical to our love of Jesus. But maybe consider the act of eating think about eating, and specifically eating the Lord's Supper. Truth is not so much conveyed by words, but conveyed with bread and wine. And it gets applied not by examining those two elements, but by ingesting them, by literally eating them. It almost would have been easier if at the Last Supper Jesus would have said, Say this in remembrance of me. Think this in remembrance of me. And in some ways I wonder if maybe that's been our approach with communion. We have taken on an enlightenment perspective where everything about communion happens between our ears instead of being an embodied experience where it all encompasses everything of who we are, which is our mind and our spirit and yes, even our body. And I know some of you have voiced this question, and I sense others have probably thought it, how does this church practice communion? And over the last 2,000 years the church has gathered around a table, both a literal table or a metaphorical one to celebrate Jesus. It has taken on many forms and many names and many languages. It happens actually in every language both in homes and cathedrals administered by lay people and by priests. It's been happening since AD 33, and is one of the few Protestant practices that crosses all sorts of ethnic, economic, and gender boundaries, and continues to be practiced today because of how central it is to the life of a Jesus follower. And two years ago, I'm sitting in a Sunday service where communion is being introduced, and this question comes to my mind. I intellectually know the significance of this moment, but why is what I am doing not reflecting what I know? In other words, what I am saying I believe to be true in this moment. That the cross of Jesus has absolved me of my sins before God Almighty that this not only symbolizes a vertical reconciliation but a communal recalibration with the family of God, and that this table is the single greatest symbol that we have to celebrate such good news. This is the height of the family of God around the table of God celebrating the work of God through the Spirit of God. All those things I believe to be true. And those things are not reflected in this quiet, private, three-minute, somber moment where I namely feel guilty about something I did last week. So I began a journey. What might it look like to reimagine how we practice the Lord's Supper? Not doing something new or innovative, but rather doing something old and ancient, what might it mean for us to journey back through the scripture and then figure out in our context in this moment how we might celebrate one of the greatest gifts we have as followers of Jesus, which is a meal around a table with the family of God in the presence of God. So from now until Christmas we're going to walk through the Lord's Supper where we look at the origin story Meals throughout the Bible, covenants around food, the theology of the table, the practices of the early church, and historical analysis of how we moved from the table being the center of the church to the stage being the center of the church. And then where do we go from here? We don't live in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. Our lives are very different. Our cultures are different. Even some of the methods that we think about when we think about church are very different. But God isn't. God is not different than he was 2,000 years ago. He has not changed. And the thing that he has given us the most has seemed to take on a completely different mold than what its original intent was. And I sense that most of us, if we're honest, have just taken the Lord's Supper at face value when administered, and not probe the depths of the mercy of God in an actual meal with his actual family. So, my aim over the next eight gatherings or so is twofold. I want us to actually use our minds to think deeper and more intentionally about the Lord's Supper and all of its various components. And then, starting in January of 2022, I want what we have discussed to frame the life of our church as we know it, where we begin practicing communion around a table, like an actual dinner table. Uh, this was a countercultural practice when it was instituted, and we'll talk about why later on. And it was critical and necessary, and it formed the people of God in profound ways. And it has the same impact today if we would just let it. Because our issue is not that we have thought too deeply of it, but that we have barely scratched the surface. So to get started, we must build a framework around God and food. It may surprise you how many times God and food actually coincide in the Bible. In fact, it's nearly impossible to read the story from start to finish and not see how central food is. And so, like many times, we begin in the beginning. Genesis 2-9 it says, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then on down, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. One of the first gifts God has given us is literal food. And here's what's fascinating about this. Genesis 1-3 through 3 is a poetic, ancient Near East narrative on the origins of the world. How did it become what it is? But in those days, there were many other narratives and many other accounts of the world, people trying to explain its origin. And one of the more well known narratives is of that of the Babylonian Empire. And this is what scholar Tim Chester says. In the Babylonian creation story, humanity was made to provide food for the gods, but with Yahweh, it is the other way around. God provides food for humanity. The first words humanity hears from God reveals his generosity. Not only did God provide humanity with a meal, he also walked with humanity in the garden in the cool of the day. In essence, humanity was made to enjoy a meal in the presence of God. And one of the themes throughout scripture is that, a meal in the presence of God, God with his people, and his people with their God. And if the triune God has always been, and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in perfect community since the beginning, then we can infer that God did not create the world because he was lonely or bored or needed some personal satisfaction. God created the world of love. And while this can't be said every time, many times, I, I think this is a helpful metaphor, parents who have children, have children, because they want to share the love of their marriage with their kids. We call it a family. And this is how God has created the world. This is Yahweh, out of love he creates, and when he creates, he shares his triangulated love with us. And like most things, the gifts God give us easily turn into the gods themselves. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die." Genesis two sixteen and 17. We are given a vast menu and there is only one prohibition, and yet we forego the great spread laid out by God in exchange for the forbidden fruit, believing that satisfaction lies outside the boundaries of God's good order. And in shame, Adam and Eve hide from God. And in that same shame, we continue to hide from him. At times, even using food and drink to provide cover. Food was made to be enjoyed with God. And now our relationship with food is itself broken. Whether it be dieting fads, overindulgence, intoxication by drink, gluttony, finding food in our identity, whatever it is, we find great comfort in food. We have unhealthy relationships with food. Particularly in this country, we are obsessed with what we eat and what we don't eat. We numb our pain with food, we indulge frequently in a food and drink of choice. Uh, We are obsessed with food, both loving it so much that we take pictures of it and post it on the internet and hate it so much that we shame other people in their food choices. We're just obsessed, whether it be by personal sin or by, and by choice or predisposition through family genes or a sickness. Every one of us is affected by the fall of man and that came about in the biblical story through food and now our relationship with it is broken. We see that we were made to be in fellowship with God, being given the gift of a meal. And now we see that we are fallen, looking everywhere but God for satisfaction, now reeling in the brokenness. And then we see, as it happens over and over and over again in Scripture, God chases us down. He chooses Abraham and ultimately creates Israel as a people to love, not because of anything they could do, but rather because of his magnificent grace. And as you know, Israel is ultimately taken captive by Egypt, and works as an enslaved people. And the only way out is through the death of a young lamb. The people of God are given instructions, dab blood over the doorpost, and when God sees the blood on the outside of the home, He will spare the family on the inside. And what were the people doing on the inside but eating the lamb? Specifically, the lamb that was killed for their safety. And this meal would become the meal. It would be known as Passover, this identity-forming, culture-shaping, festive, celebratory, communal feast where the story of God sparing the people from death and saving them from Egypt will be told to their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. And generation after generation would know the power of God through this week-long annual dinner party. In Exodus 12:14, this day shall be for you in a memorial day, And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. The redemption of Israel came in the form of a meal. But not only redemption would come through it, but the provision of God would come through it. In Exodus 16, we read, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died! By the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." The Israelites are in the wilderness and they are complaining specifically about food. The food in Egypt, enslaved and all, was better than the food in the wilderness as they were free beyond belief. And what does God do when the people complain and grumble and shake their fist at Him? He literally provides food, manna from heaven. God's grace meets them once again. And then, in one of the most bizarre stories in the entire Scripture, we read about a meeting on a mountain one in which we will circle back to in in the coming weeks, but it's a meal that cements God's covenant and His promise to the people of Israel. Exodus 24, I I challenge you to read it this week, it's probably the strangest scene in the entire Bible. Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel go to the top of the mountain and they meet God. They literally meet God. God should smoke them off the mountain. Should absolutely obliterate him, them from His presence, but instead of doing that an altar has been created where they can stand in His presence and instead of destroying them He actually eats a meal with them. Literally the text says and God eats a meal with them, sealing the promise that they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that the love of God is set on. And then we see this meal replicated, almost at least replicated, in the tabernacle. In this building that is made to resemble both the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, we get the literal bread known as the bread of presence. The tabernacle was so unique and there's a ton to go through in it, but in the place where God dwelled was a golden table. And on that table laid freshly baked bread. It was a reminder of the presence of God hearkening back to the meal on Mount Sinai where God and his people dine together. And if the tabernacle is seen as Yahweh's home and and in a home there is a place of fellowship, that place is the table with bread representing the communal meal and the very presence of God. And even the descriptions of the promised land over and over and over again, what is it described as? A land flowing with milk and honey. And then fast forward, right? God steps onto the scene in flesh and blood, and so many of His interactions and His parables and His revelations are about food and drink. The very first miracle he does is show up at a wedding and become the talk of the party when the drink runs out and he transforms water into fine aged wine. And one of his most notable miracles is the feeding of the 5,000 where he transforms two fish and five loaves into a bounty of food and overwhelms the crowd by multiplying such little supply, so much so that there are baskets of leftovers. And if you know how Jesus is portrayed uh, by the religious leaders of the day, what is the notorious name that they call him? He is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Why is that the accusation? It's because that's who he associates with. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And then of course we come to that final meal of Jesus where He takes the bread and wine during the celebration of the Passover and He repurposes the entire dinner. So instead of only telling the story of the exodus of Egypt and the faithfulness of God throughout the generations, He says, this bread is my body and this drink is my blood, so eat and drink in remembrance of me. I can imagine the moments the disciples had, right? They were expecting this retelling of the story of Exodus. And Jesus does explain that there is a story of Exodus that should be told. But there is also another story of freedom that spans far wider and goes far deeper than that of Israel and Egypt. The meal gets repurposed, and the Passover becomes the supper The bread now symbolizing what Jesus has offered us, which is himself, and the wine now signifying what Jesus has done for us, which has poured his life out. And the meal of Jesus has now become ours. Communion now grounds the people of God. And in the chaotic frenzy of the cultural climate, Of that day and of our day, what we need is embodied fellowship around a table with one another for encouragement, for celebration, for lament, for perseverance, and for mission. Communion grounds us in the very presence of God. There is something about sitting around a table that sort of calms you down. It settles our hearts and reminds us that we are not the point. But actually what the bread and cup symbolize is the point. But yet we have been invited to the table to eat in the very presence of God. Why? How? What was experienced with Adam and Eve in the garden and what was experienced by the Israelites in Passover and what was experienced with the elders of Israel on Sinai And what the bread of presence symbolizes in the tabernacle and what was experienced with Jesus and His disciples at the Last Supper is still what we get to experience. The Lord's Supper points us to Jesus, and now we are partakers in this great feast. We are not passive audience members waiting to see how the story turns out. We're in the story. We're part of the drama. We're not the main character, but we're in it. And the Lord's Supper proves as such." And here's where I want to get practical and circle back to the Enlightenment. We are bodies. We don't just have a body, we are a body. The fullness of God dwelled bodily in Jesus and His resurrection proves that God cares about our bodies. And because Jesus physically rose from the dead and was the firstborn among all creation, We believe that we too will be resurrected in our bodies on the last day. Our bodies will be made new. So communion is not just a personal thought exercise where we recall past events in our minds. It's actually an embodied practice. We eat the bread, we drink the cup. Eating and drinking is paramount to what we do as human beings. God has given the one practice that we must do to stay alive physically, eat and drink, to remind us of the one thing we must do to stay alive spiritually, eat and drink of Jesus. It's a meal. It's a regular, consistent reminder that we need the presence of God and we need the people of God. The thing about communion is you cannot take it alone. You cannot take it by yourself and we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, but there's another word for communion used in the Scripture, and this is how the early church celebrated it. They called it a love feast. A love feast. That has a very, very different ring to it than communion, or at least how the majority of us practice it in modern day. This celebratory, joy-filled, longing for the world to be made right sharing with one another, enjoying the presence of Jesus, the assurance of salvation, and the family of God around a table, commissioned out into the world every single week. Now, doing something like this has a particular caution with it. A couple cautions, but one particularly. What we are entering and what we are going to be doing and how we're going to practice communion and how we're going to discuss the elements of communion is not, I repeat, is not a takedown or a grand critique on how churches across the western world practice communion today. That's not what this is. There are so many churches doing so many wonderful things practicing communion in many ways, most of which we're all very familiar with, and that is great. That is great. I do not have an issue with that. I am genuinely not interested in critiquing what others are doing or trying to, you know, show anyone up. I am much more interested in this church becoming like Jesus and practicing His ways. And I believe for this church, in this time, God is calling us to be formed around a table more consistently, more intentionally, and more joyfully than ever before. So going forward, we will talk through scripturally, theologically, practically what it means for us as Mosaic to take communion. And that will include talking through elements of communion that are in scripture, right? They're explicit, laid out, and obvious. And that will include talking through elements of communion that are not in scripture. Or at least that are a bit more gray, contextualized, and perhaps left open to some freedom and interpretation. Our goal is to stick close to the text, Stick close to Jesus so that we might be met with his presence, assured of his love, and join in his mission to put the world to right. And as many of us are longing for, we see how the story started with a meal, continues with a meal, and ends in one. There is an important line in Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper. It says, Jesus says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus does not give us his supper as a final meal, but as a precursor to the conclusion. He points us backward in the Passover, and for us, we look back to that last meal, and then he points us forward. Says this John says this in Revelation 19, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We, start with, we started with a meal in the presence of God. And we will end with a meal in the presence of God. The lamb that was eaten at Passover, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who we now eat of, representing both our need and dependence on him at the supper, that Jesus is going to light up the world by his very presence in the new heavens. And we will eat, and we will celebrate, and we will rejoice because that is what you do when darkness and death are no more, and that is what you do when evil and oppression are no more, and that is what you do when freedom and joy are the only currencies that you know you eat. God has embedded into the fabric of the world that we will eat together with him. That's what Passover was about. That's what communion is about. That's what this final supper will be about. Why is it that in every culture, no matter the time period or language, every single culture celebrates with food. God has embedded it into the DNA of humanity. We eat together. So all our practice of communion is, is a practice of what we will be doing for the rest of eternity and what we will be doing in the new creation, eating and drinking, as a family in the presence of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for the day that you are going to host us at your table. And we long for the day when all of the world is made right, including things in us. And I pray specifically for us, in this church, these people, that we would be people who are formed around a table. That we learn what it means to enjoy the very presence of God that you have given us by your Spirit. Help us not neglect that, but aid us as we enter into this new season that you are doing a new work in us, drawing us deeper in and further in and then compelling us to live further out for the advance of your kingdom in our city and beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.